that you will speak to us as we look to your word. We are not like pagan mystics or idolaters trying by feats and fancies to stir up sleeping gods. We come to a God who ever lives, a God who never changes, a God who has spoken to us for time and eternity in his living, inerrant, immutable, sufficient word. The only issue is will we hear? And we pray for a work of the Spirit of God, uh, enabling the preacher to preach faithfully and with his eye on pleasing God alone, with neither fear of man nor anything else motivating. And we pray for each hearer that we will hear you speak through your word, humble ourselves before your word, be taught by your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In this section of scripture, something stands out to us. I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question, so don't answer this one. But what do we see that God is most jealous for? What is most important to God? I imagine some might want to say, well, his people, his saints. No, that's not true. God is most jealous for his glory. He's most jealous for his name. And if you think about it, that is only as should be. If God had any other item, any other concern, looming greater to himself than himself, then God would be an idolater. But God's glory and God's name is dearest to himself. And we see Jesus showing this in a situation where he's speaking to his disciples who've just done everything they can and poured their hearts out to reach people. But as a matter of fact, most of the cities, though they saw works of the presence of the kingdom of God, though they heard the very word of the living God, most people, what? Did not repent. And so what does Jesus say to them? And what does Jesus say to his father? Well, we see here and have been saying, and we'll see even more forcefully today, that he rests on his father's absolute, meticulous, all-encompassing sovereignty. And not just rests on it, not just uh, comforts himself, but absolutely and positively delights in the truth of God's sovereignty. As one has said, I think it was Spurgeon, the truth of God's sovereignty is the pillow that the saint rests his head on. Well, the Savior takes us there as well. And if we want to think uh, as Jesus does, if we want to learn from Jesus, if we want to follow the actual Jesus, then we will make sure that we hear and hear with full force everything that he's saying here. So the verses we're looking at are verses 25 and 26. I've translated for you here in your outline. At that point, Jesus in response, that is in response to the failure of these cities to repent, Jesus in response said, I openly acknowledge you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and comprehending, and you revealed them to infants. Yes, indeed, Father, because in this way, what was a delight before you came to be. So we looked uh, last week, Roman numeral one, I've just given you in summary, and I'll, I'll recap it now, uh, the celebration of God, which is deliberately ambiguous because this is Jesus celebrating God, but in such it is God celebrating God. It is God the Son celebrating uh, the Father, Lord of heaven and earth. What was the season of this celebration? It was at the time of the rejection of the message by all these cities. Their failure to repent. At that very moment, he goes to his father, Jesus, who has shown his lordship and power in every realm. The supernatural, the spiritual, the natural. He's lord of every realm. He goes to his father and 
not defeated, not discouraged, not despondent, not surprised, not self-reproachful, not torn, not angsty, but with great open praise and gladness and adoration. He says, I openly acknowledge you. It's the opposite of rejection. It's the opposite of Peter saying, Jesus who? There's lots of Jesuses. I don't know the Jesus you're talking about. It's the opposite of that. It's Jesus openly acknowledging uh, that his father has done all and done all well. So uh, the sound is a very happy celebrating, uh, celebratory sound. And the subject is the subject of God's will, of God's dealing, of God's dealing with the souls of man. And that takes us to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And uh, we began looking at its operation. And there are two sides to what the Bible teaches about uh, God's sovereignty, his eternal sovereignty over, uh, the, over mankind and over all things. Uh, with regards to man, we see his sovereignty in the acts of reprobation and the act of election. Or today I will use the word revelation. Uh, we looked at reprobation last uh, week, and we saw that uh, God, who is the author of history, who is the Lord of history, who created and designed history, and not just the start of it, but all of it, who calls himself the beginning and the end, calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, who says that I will do all my counsel and I will carry out all my will, the God whose scripture says works all things after the counsel of his will, decrees that the fall would happen, and viewing the fallen mass of mankind, elects to leave some in their sin and to save some. The first is called reprobation. We looked at that last week. If you missed that sermon, I'd encourage you to look it up online. But reprobation is simply God's passing over. God's leaving man in his sin. Because the, the, every man, woman, and child underwent a perfectly designed, perfectly executed, perfectly just test in our first father. In Genesis 2 and 3. The uh, sinless, fresh created image of God, Adam was given a test and we all know where that went. He failed. He failed. And in his failure he brought condemnation and corruption to all of us because he stood as our representative. The representative of every naturally born descendant he would ever have. And when he failed, we all failed. When he was judged, we all were judged. In his corruption, we all became corrupt. And so we need to understand to view Scripture the way that Jesus, the prophets, the apostles, God views Scripture. We need to understand that every morning when an unrepentant sinner opens his eyes on another day, it's another extra inning in a baseball game that he's already lost. And when we think, well, he's owed this or that chance... No, he's not. We all had our chance in Genesis 2 and 3. And that ship has sailed. The fact that we open our eyes on a new day is a sheer gift. And I hope as you learned about this last week, I hope you understood why I so often speak to you so earnestly. Why I make the point that, that to, to assume that we're going to have another chance to hear a gospel that we've not accepted is a fool's game. And I've pled with you, if you've not made peace with Christ, that's the most important thing on your schedule. And perhaps you saw more clearly last week why that is. Because for 17 years of my life, I woke up each day in an extra inning, 
in a chance I was not owed, that was a sheer gift of grace and long-suffering and mercy. But there's a limit. But there's a limit to how many are given. And one moment will be the last moment, and none of us knows when that is. There is not a little timer that appears in the air saying, you got five minutes. This is your last chance. No, we've already had our last chance. These are all extra chances. And we shouldn't, it's a fool's game to presume on them. So this is the case in which we all find ourselves. And Jesus speaks of that when he speaks of uh, God's reprobation, that he hides these things from the eyes of the wise and comprehending. Are they really wise and comprehending? No, that's just how they see themselves. They're the opposite of wise and comprehending. They, they gave up knowledge and wisdom when, they turned from, when we turned from God and Adam. So, it, it, to them, sin hides the grace and the, the power of uh, these things, of the things of the gospel, and God hides these things from these condemned rebels who have already had so many extra chances and have spurned yet another. God hides these things from them. We studied that last week. So none of that should shock us because that's just justice. That's just what we deserve for the rebellion of Adam in the garden. This is simple justice. That doesn't, shouldn't shock anyone, and yet that is the truth that does shock people because in our hearts we still kind of side with the sinner. <laughs> the the uncrucified remnants of sin in our nature still kind of still kind of root for the other side even without our knowing it sometimes and so it's kind of shocking to hear verses like this where Jesus just straight out praises God for hiding these things from the lost who just rejected the gospel but that's not what should shock us it's the next part that should shock us that God still reveals these truths to anyone. That should be the shocker. That God stoops to save these people who've trampled his world and sinned against him with every thought and every breath. That God should do everything that is required to save those he's chosen of that mass of fallen sinners. That's the real surprise. And that's what Jesus turns to now. The flip side of reprobation, which is... uh, Uh, biblically it would be election but to make two words go together better and because it's the word Jesus uses I say revelation number two the sovereignty of God operating in revelation number two at that point Jesus in response said I openly acknowledge you father lord of heaven and of earth that you hid these things from the wise and comprehending and you revealed them to infants so first question I want to ask is why is it needed Number, letter A. Why is revelation needed? Why, why, you know, when you really understand these things, it's not that they're that complex, so why does it require an act of revelation? Uh, is it because a veil, now, by the way, the word revelation means to unveil. It means to lift off a veil. So what is the veil being lifted off of? Is it because the facts themselves are veiled? Is it the, the information is hidden? But in the case of his elect, he takes the veil off so they can see it where nobody else saw it. Well, clearly no, because what's the, what's the context here? What's the setting? What had just happened? This is just after an, a, an evangelistic mission in which he'd sent out his apostles to cities to preach the kingdom of God 
and to do miracles that showed the presence of the kingdom of God. And these were all public. It was not, you know, like, like modern fakes have to do. It was not done in dim lighting or in back rooms or only when certain people are present. It was out in the open in front of everybody. It was indoors, outdoors, daytime, nighttime, all sorts of circumstances. And it was, it was not the information that was veiled. It was, it was not a problem that the information was unavailable. What was the veil taken off of? The information... The, the knowledge, no, the veil was taken off the knower. The problem was in the knower. The problem was in the minds and hearts of every man, woman, and child born to Adam's race. Uh, I can read you a number of scriptures that, that show this very clearly. Uh, John chapter 12, verses 39 and 40. John 12, 39 and 40, uh, reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Speaking of these who had seen so many miracles and still did not believe, why didn't they believe? Well, John says, and says, sounding very much like Jesus, for this reason they could not believe. And that's a good translation. They were not able to believe. For Isaiah said again, he, God, has blinded their hearts. And he, God, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return, and I heal them. Now again, don't think this is some special subset, as if there are three kinds of people. The really bad ones, the saved ones, and people who are kind of in the middle. There aren't. There's just unbelievers and believers. And blindness and hardness is the lot of these. It's, it's, it's along with the miseries that come with sin. It's just part of the things that happen. Remember, we talked about the man who loses his wife, he loses his job, he loses his kids, such a tragedy, till we realize the reason why he loses all these things is because he was convicted of murder. And those are the things that happen when you're convicted of murder. And these are the sorts of things that happen when we're convicted of sin, which our entire race is. Romans 1.21, tracing the same course. For although they knew God, this is everybody. Paul says very plainly that we all have access to revelation. We all see testimonies to God all around us and all inside of us. And he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or more literally did not glorify him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Little, under, little interesting thing there. Jesus uses a word I translate as comprehending, uh, wise and comprehending in Matthew 11. This is the negative of that, uncomprehending. Uh, it's the opposite of that word. So their uncomprehending hearts were darkened. By whom? By God, as penalty for their sin. Their uncomprehending hearts were darkened. And 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Paul says, our gospel is not hidden. We don't have secret meetings where we only tell the initiates. You know, if you give the, the proper sign and, the, and the, the password, then we'll tell you the gospel. No, he says, it's out in front, and yet people don't see it. Oh, why don't they see it? Because they're stupid? No, no. No, he says it's because the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And Paul says further in Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding. Their very way of thinking. Sin corrupts every part of us. It's like you put salt on something and stir and there's saltiness everywhere. Sin is that in our nature, including our thinking. 
darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. That was Ephesians 4.18 and now Ephesians 5.8. For, listen, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So I think in a kind of whimsical way of this, this song, you know, this little, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Well, that's as should be. But apart from a gracious work of God, it's not going to do any good for people who are darkness. Paul doesn't just say you're in darkness. He said that their understanding is darkened. But now he says not only that, but all of us, when we were apart from Christ, all of us were darkness. Now, what do you do about that? Well, you use your free will to turn on the light inside of you, right? But what's inside of you? <laughs> it's a dark heart. Will is, is just the heart making choices. And, and what is your heart? Paul says it's darkness. So where do I get light from? Well, I don't. Not from inside myself, I don't. No. And so he says, Paul says, and obviously in Ephesians, that we're saved as an act of God's sovereign grace. But you see, here's the problem then. The problem is not the unavailability of the information. It's out there in front of everybody. We don't need a veil taken off the information. What do we need? We need a veil taken off the knowers. The people seeing the information, their darkness, just to put the scripture together, their darkness, they, they cannot believe, their hearts are hard, they've become fools, they're uncomprehending, and on and on and on. Uh, the solution is not within themselves, and it's not a solution they would ever reach for, because you need wisdom to do that. You need light to do that. They think they're fine. You know, I never look better. You know when I look my very best? Pitch black room. <laughs> that's when I look the very best. Th those are the best pictures of me. You take a picture of me in absolute darkness, and that's going to be my right side. Uh, because you can't see anything. And that's what we are. We can't see anything. So we're not going to find out by opening our eyes wider. It takes an act of God. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here when he says, you revealed them to infants. You took the veil off so that these infants could see them. So, why is it necessary? Because we're veiled. Second question, so what does revealed mean in this context? Is very often the word revealed in, in theology and in the Bible means the impartation of fresh information. A, a prophet gives a revelation, meaning that God is speaking directly from heaven. These are new words from God, not contained in Scripture. That's revelation. Is this that? No, this is not that. So what is this then? Well, you just have to remember what hiding is in the first part. Hiding is not making the information unavailable. What is hiding? Hiding is concealing the power and the beauty of this information. They see the events. They see the facts. But they don't see the beauty and the power and the impact and their need of these facts, you see? So if that's what hiding is, then revealing is not bringing out new facts. Revealing is taking the veil off so that these infants see the power and the beauty and the necessity of these facts and, and their impact on them personally. They, they see that this is for me. I just, I'm flashing on the fact, on, on the day I was saved, February 11, 1973, and I heard the gospel, and I'd heard the gospel before, 
but I haven't heard the gospel before. Do you know what I mean? I, he, this, this preacher said nothing new. He, he had the same Bible that I'd had and I'd read. He had that same Bible. But I heard it for the first time. Why? Because I was so much smarter that day. <laughs> no. Not then or since. <laughs> no, it was an act of God's grace and that's what we're reading about here. God revealing the power and beauty to these people who he is saving. So, Revealing is unveiling the sinner's heart so that he can see the significance of the truth. Now, I, I think it, it might be helpful then just to, to, to imagine two men. Imagine uh, Biff and Bud. So here's Biff and Bud. And Biff and Bud grew up similarly. They'd, they'd heard the gospel as kids and they walked away from it. And uh, so Biff and Bud, last night, Saturday night, they're in a bar drinking together. And they were both blaspheming God, and they were both cursing, and they were talking about how stupid Christians were, and how what a crutch religion is, and how narrow and hateful those fundamentalists are. Uh, and then, uh, as matters would have it, the next day, Sunday, they both go to the same church. Maybe their, their wives drag them, or maybe their friends, or, or whatever lark brings them to this church. They're sitting in the same church. And in this church, Biff and Bud here the gospel of Jesus Christ preached faithfully by a faithful pastor. He preaches passionately, faithfully, truthfully. The Spirit of God is working in him. He lays out the gospel in front. Both men hear this. Biff, hearing it, honestly, would tell you that was the stupidest thing he'd ever heard. And he looks around and just feels sorry for all these poor dupes wasting their life, playing around with religion when they could be out there enjoying life. He thinks of how, what, 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 what fault is it in their genes or their upbringing or their education that brings them to this place? What a ridiculous thing. And he, he hears this gospel, but he sees no beauty in it. He sees no power in it. And he sees, for the life of him, nothing he needs. He can't imagine any circumstance where he would need this. Not that. I mean, I'm making it okay. I, I know that if I just try a little harder, work a little harder, get some better breaks in life, everything's going to work out for me. He's absolutely certain of that. And Biff uh, leaves the church, gets in his car, drives away, and is killed on the way home, and goes and stands before God condemned, and begins his eternal sentence, suffering under the wrath of God. Bud, on the other hand, in the same church, from the same background, with the same temperament, hears that gospel, and it's like a lightning bolt has struck him. It's like he's the only person in the room with God talking to him. And every word that preacher says, it's like he's read his diary and knows everything about him. And he finds himself naked before God without defense, without anywhere to run or anywhere to hide, knowing that he stands before God in his sins, knowing that if he died, he wouldn't have a word to say in his own defense, and knowing that he is going to die and he will face that judgment. And when he hears about Jesus Christ come to save sinners, that is just the best news he's ever heard it's the best news for him it's like he's in the desert and you've said look water is he interested in that water to live yes and so he hears of Jesus and hears that Jesus came to save sinners and that Jesus calls and that we may come well, he comes he comes running to Jesus the place you don't want to be is between Bud and Jesus because he's going to Jesus and he throws himself on his face before the Lord in his heart and 
cries out for mercy, confesses his sin, confesses his, his complete guilt and lack of defense, and throws himself on the mercy of God, begs Jesus to be his Savior and to be his Lord. And he goes out from that meeting, gets in his car, five minutes later dies in a traffic accident, and he goes to depart and be with Christ forever. Now, the question I want to ask you is, what makes that difference? Well, you say, well, in Biff's case, it's because he was a sinner. Amen. You're, you're there with the Bible. And if you want to say, and, and his trouble was that he just didn't muster up in himself the sense to make the smart move and, and, and choose Jesus. But he could have done that. Well, now, here you go away from what the Bible says. We just read, could not believe. We just read, darkened. We just read, dead. We just read, hard. So, does he freely choose to reject Jesus? Yes, he does. If by freely what you mean is he chooses what his heart wants to choose. He's not compelled to this choice. His heart is dark. His heart hates God. His heart, there's no fear of God before his heart. It's dead. And so he chooses what his heart chooses and he goes his way and he suffers for his sin. Now we get to the point Jesus is talking about now. How about Bud? What was it that made Bud, that got Bud saved? Same background, same gospel, same situation. He rejects, he accepts. Why did he accept? Don't answer this out loud. Because I don't ever, (laughs) I try to avoid ever having to correct anybody in in a service. I mean, I really, really do. What was it made Bud get saved? And if your answer starts with the words, because Bud... I'm going to stop you right there. Because Bud had in his heart exactly what Biff had in his heart. Bud was exactly the same person Biff did. If you're going to say, well, no, but God tried the best he could to save both of them. But Bud, again, let me stop you right there. God tried and God failed in Biff's case, but he succeeded in Bud's case with Bud's help. Well then, if you're going to, if you insist on answering because Bud because of something Bud did that came from inside of Bud, then when Bud gets to heaven, who gets the glory for his salvation? It's going to be Bud. It's going to be Bud because he and Biff were in the same place and they had the same natures and the same hearts. But God did a work of grace in Bud's heart. The scripture says this over and over again. We've seen it. I'll remind you again. In uh, First, First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of his doing are we in Christ Jesus, so that, as it is written, if anyone boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Where is boasting, Paul asks? It is removed. Paul says, Jesus says, no man can come to me except the Father who sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up the last day, and all who the Father gives me will come to me. Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together. So what happened in Bud's life is like what we sing when we sing the song, uh, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast fast, fast bound in sin and nature's night. That's all our testimony. We're all that way. Thine eye diffused a quickening, which means life-giving. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. 
And when Bud gets to heaven, who will get the glory? All the glory will go to God because God revealed these things to him, because God worked in his heart in grace, because God breathed life into him. And you say, well, but he would say that he went through all sorts of struggles and that he had to make decisions. Yes, he did. But understand, sometimes in, in, in describing things, sometimes the Bible focuses on the fruit and sometimes it focuses on the root, which is to say sometimes it, it focuses on the cause and sometimes on the effect. So does a person need to hear the gospel? Does he need to understand it? Does, it? does he need to think it through? Does he need to believe? Does he need to repent? Does he need to choose Christ? Yes, all those things he needs to do. How is he going to do that when he hates God and his heart is sold under bondage to sin? Because we say, well, because he's, he's free. Well, you know, if we saw man the way the Bible sees it, we would talk less about free will and more about slave will. Because what does the Bible say about us? Romans 6, we're slaves of God or we're slaves of sin. And Jesus says, no man can serve two masters. And Jesus says, all who do sin are slaves of sin. So you'd better set yourself free. Is that what Jesus says then? No, he says, if the Son sets you free, then you'll be free. It takes an act of God to break those chains. It takes an act of God to breathe life into that dead heart, to transform that heart so that it then freely chooses the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Biff freely chooses to reject the gospel. So the born-again person freely chooses Christ because he's been freed, because God has done a work of grace in his heart for which all the glory goes to God. Now, this is what Scripture says and says repeatedly and, and, and very clearly. Uh, let's look at that letter C. How does this all happen? Because the way you've got to end up is you've got to end up where Jesus ends up. First, he's calling on his Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He speaks of God's reprobation and revelation. And then what does he say in verse 26? Yes, indeed, Father, because in this way what was a delight before you came to be. Jesus puts everything to the sovereign will of God. And if in our math, when we show our work, some of the will, some of the glory has to go to the man, then we've done the math wrong because we're not ending up where Jesus ended up. So what does scripture say? Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What does John say? Speaking of the need of, re of receiving Christ, but how do we receive Christ? John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How did I get to, to that place? He goes on to say, who are born not of blood, it's not inherited, nor of the will of the flesh, it's not by my decision, nor of the will of man, it's not some priest's decision, but of God born of God. John says that over and over in his letter, born of God. And the phrasing means having been given birth by God. God is the cause. Uh, John 3, the gospel of John. Now John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, I truly, 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 I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you know, Nicodemus says, well, how can these things be? And Jesus doesn't say and for years, this kind of bothered me, to be honest, growing up in the usual evangelical, growing up as a new Christian in the usual evangelical culture. 
you'd expect Jesus to say, oh, here's four steps to get yourself born again. But does Jesus do any of that? You know, when I first heard that Billy Graham had written a book, How to Be Born Again, it, it didn't, you know, I didn't even raise an eyebrow. Now, uh, I think, well, that just shows some real troubles in his theology. How to be born again. Well, how were you born the first time? How did you work that one out? And how do you get born the second time? Well, what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, here's four steps to get yourself born again. What does he say? What he answers is, the, let's see, John chapter 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is a sovereign act of the Spirit of God, just as we read in Ezekiel. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then another question, how do I, how does a, this is all answering the question, how does a know-it-all wise worldling become a teachable infant who can see the things of God? How do you make that translation? And the answer of scripture is, by a sovereign work of God's grace, by God giving a new heart, by God giving new birth, by God shining in that heart like an act of creation. And Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And that word purpose is the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 11.26. For in this way, what was your purpose, your delight, came to pass. So, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, but it's only heard by ears created by God and eyes opened by God, seen by eyes opened by God. God reveals these things to infants, and they are infants because they've been born again by a sovereign act of God's grace. That's what humbles them. They would not humble themselves until God works in their hearts to humble them and to give them new birth, so that it's all of grace. So now what is the foundation then that Jesus takes himself to in verse 26? What is the foundation for this operation of sovereignty? Well, where would the man-centered person go to explain all this? He'd say, ah, yes, Father, um, it's not a happy conclusion, but, you know, we did our best. It's too bad it worked out this way. That, that's, I guess, the way somebody who uh, uh, subscribes to pagan philosophies of history and God and man would go. Or he might say, well, we had a setback, Father, but let's try harder next time. You know, maybe we'll get a better result. Or here's a 15-point explanation for why it's okay that this happened that doesn't involve you really being sovereign in this situation. Let's you off the hook for, for, for what happened. No, Jesus doesn't do any of those things, though, does he? What does he do? He says, yes, indeed, Father, because in this way... What was a delight before you came to be? Yes, indeed, Father, Jesus says. That's his way of re-emphasizing his delight and his approval of the ways of God. It's not, he didn't say however, <laughs> or on the other hand. He says, yes, indeed. He's underlining God's sovereignty in reprobation and revelation, equally, both. He simply reaffirms that what happened, happened because God was pleased that that would happen. And we need to see this. We, we need to see that Jesus, our Lord, delighted in God's ab absolute sovereignty. He didn't regard it as controversial. He didn't regard it as something to be reserved for only a, an elect few, a select few of extra, um, extra mature people in a, 
in, in, in a private small meeting where people won't be offended. That wasn't the way Jesus viewed it. He, he viewed it as something to be said in front of all. And when he said similar things in John 6 and people left him by the boatload because they hated hearing about God's sovereignty and salvation and the exclusivity of Christ. And they were walking out. And he says to the disciples, are you going to leave too? He doesn't say, wait, wait, go get them and bring them back. I'll try again to explain it to them. He doesn't say that. He's, he is delighted in this truth. We need to face, face this, that if we're not delighted like Jesus is, then we're not learning to think like Jesus thinks. We're not reflecting his attitude, and that's what we all want to do. So if we don't see it the way he does, then that's great news. That shows us an area of our thinking that needs to be crucified, put to death, and replaced with, with God's truth. He says, yes, indeed, Father. In this way, what was a delight before you came to be? He's not glumly resigned to this course of events. He, he, he's delighted in them. This word I translate delight. It's the same uh, as we found a verb form in, in, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 17, where at Jesus' baptism, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm delighted. This, that's just the verb form of this noun. And we see this noun used elsewhere in Scripture to speak of God's sovereign decree, God's will. God's declaration of what it pleases him to have happen in history. Uh, we just read at Ephesians 1.5 that we were predestined according to the good pleasure of his will, the delight, the decree of his will. Or verse 9 of Ephesians 1, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his decree, his good pleasure, his delight, which he purposed in him. This is God's sovereign will, his sovereign delight, his sovereign decree. So if Jesus makes this the cause, then we shouldn't seek another cause. Jesus makes this the cause. It's like the end of Job, you know. I'll bet that you were surprised as I was when you read through Job. And you read the beginning of Job, why these things happen to Job, and then you read all these chapters where Job's friends say things that contain some truth, some error, and Job says some things that contain some truth, some error, and he gets more and more upset and wants to have an audience with God. And then God appears... And he doesn't say, okay, okay, you know, this has gone on long enough. Let me just explain to you why I did this. Is that what, you, what God says? Not at all. <laughs> and you expect him to. And you're kind of disappointed when he doesn't because you feel sorry for Job. But what does God, in fact, do? He appears and he says, so, you want to have a debate with me as my peer. I just need to see your resume. Where were you when I created everything? How do you feed all those animals? How do you keep all those stars up in the heaven? And then Job says the thing that God says he approves of. He says, I repent. <laughs> I've seen you with this, I've heard of you, but now I know, Job 42 too, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I've heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now I see you, so I repent. I retract in dust and ashes. And God says, yeah, that's the right thing to say. That's the right thing to say. And so that's where the book of Job goes. That's where Jesus goes. That's where Paul goes. Look, look at Romans chapter 9 with me. It's the same place he goes. And we should learn that this is the place where we go. Paul was heartbroken. Well, you know, this is really very simple. I mean, sorry, very similar to the situation in Matthew 11. Jesus is confronting the case of all these cities who saw all these miracles, heard all these preaching, and still didn't repent. What's Paul? What's Paul looking at? A nation he loves, a nation he's a member of, 
that's had the preaching of the gospel for years and has rejected it. They rejected their Messiah, and they continue to reject the preaching of the gospel. And, and where does he go? Does, where does he go to explain that? Well, he goes the same place Jesus does. He goes to the absolute sovereignty of God and God's purpose in election and in election and reprobation. I mean, I know this is, this is deep going, but this is just what Jesus is saying here. In Romans chapter 9, um, speaking of uh, Esau and, and uh, Jacob, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated run in and you say, well, yeah, but Esau was a very, very bad man. That's right. That's right. Just like Jacob. You say, oh, wait a minute. No, he wasn't that. Well, okay. Well, let me just take you back a few chapters to Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3. What does that tell us? We're all very bad men. Left to ourselves, this is the way we all are. So why are some saved? Paul says because of God's election. That's what makes the difference. Jacob, I, both of them are guilty Both of them deserve God's hatred. But he sets his love on Jacob. And read on. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy. More literally, the Greek says, I will show whom I wish. I'm sorry. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He brings up, Pharaoh, and he says in verse 16, he, whom he wishes he shows mercy and whom he wishes he hardens. And then just notice here, verse 19, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And this is exactly where Paul had to say, oh, oh no, you, you, don't, you misunderstand. Let me tell you all about free will and how God doesn't really make these choices. He just looks down through history to see what will do and then he, he does the best he can uh, responding to our choices, you know, kind of we're actually sovereign, not God. And, and God does his best to, to clean up, you know, after our... But he doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter not right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? Why does he do it then? Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he's prepared beforehand for glory. So this is God carrying out his sovereign will. Paul goes the same place that Jesus went. Jesus went the same place that Job went. All the apostles and prophets go the same place to the sovereign God. And so the Christian who learns from Jesus and doesn't insist on uh, um, pressing our own worldly man-elevating system onto Jesus We'll go to the same place because it's, it's all over Scripture. Everywhere you go in Scripture, you bump into statements to this effect. Psalms 33.11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Um, Proverbs uh, 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Uh, Proverbs 21.1, the heart of the king is in the hand of Yahweh like rivers of water. He turns it. Every way he wishes. And if that's true of the heart of the most powerful person in the land, 
It's true of everybody. Uh, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Daniel chapter 4 just so is filled with it and with, with saying that uh, he does according to his will among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done? In Ephesians 1.11 He works all things after the counsel of his will. And the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Not the Alpha and the Psi, not the first and the next to last, not the beginning and the almost end, but God's the whole story. He devises it, he conducts it, he concludes it. He's God, he's just God. And Jesus delights in that fact and teaches us to delight in that fact, too, to rest our head on that pillow. So as I've said, as we look on a, on a discouraging field, in, on America, which is going uh, in the wrong direction as fast as it can, and, and we think, well, what hope is there? Well, in, in man, there is no hope. And in our efforts, there is no hope. But in God, there's all hope. God has it in his power to open blind eyes and to give death, uh, life to dead hearts. Who here knows that? I know that. Do you know that? Every one of us who believes in Christ knows that because he's done it for us. And God, it is in God's hand to do that. That's why we pray to that God for his sovereign mercy to move and to show for himself. Not to try harder. He doesn't need to try harder. But we pray knowing that the prayer of a believer is the decree of God beginning to operate. That God is pleased to answer prayer, and so we pray for revival. We pray for the work of the gospel, and we know that he will bring his sheep, that he will work to bring to open blind eyes and to give life to dead hearts, and it will be of his glory. And so it's not our part to be discouraged. Jesus was not discouraged. He wouldn't let his disciples be discouraged. It's our part to labor on. As he'll explain in the, ch- in the 13th chapter, it's our, it's our part to sow seed. yes. Three out of four soils will not produce fruit. So sow more seed, sow more seed, sow more seed, like Jesus continues to do as well. In both cases, God is sovereign. In both cases, God is glorious. And that shatters our pride, and, and that's a good thing. Like J.C. Ryle says, nothing is so likely to keep a man out of heaven and prevent him from seeing Christ as pride. So long as we think we are something, we shall never be saved. And to that I say, amen. And I also say that nothing so hinders the growth of a Christian as pride. Nothing so fouls us up as the insistence of defending the dignity and the sovereignty of man rather than focusing, as Scripture does, on the dignity and sovereignty of God and delighting in that and resting on that and being, being encouraged by that. This is what our Lord Jesus teaches us to do. So if you have not yet come to peace with God through Christ, I urge you yet again, do not assume you'll have another chance to hear the gospel. God has been so gracious in giving you one more. I urge you to find your way to him. I urge you to turn to him and to call on him for salvation. And to you, Christian brother, Christian sister, in your salvation, I just encourage you to look and see what a great work God did. God did not help you get saved. God saved you. God did not offer you salvation. 
God visited you with salvation. God did not just point you to life. God gave you life. What a glorious saving God we have and, and what good hands we're in and what glory we should always be giving him. Amen. A few moments of silent reflection, prayer, anything you want to jot down in your outline, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Our great God, we thank you for the privilege of overhearing Jesus' words to you. And they teach us and take us into such deep water, but thank you that you hold us as we go there. And we are not surprised to find that there are mysteries there that we cannot explain or fully understand. But we do, even as we look at the heavens, and we can't count the stars, we can't imagine how, how huge they are, and yet you are so much bigger, so much grander, so much more glorious. Thank you for what we can see of you. Grant us to look on you with love and reverence and worship and to bow in humility before your godhood and your lordship. In Jesus' name, amen.